Hey, welcome to Cornerstone Ministries Young Adult Podcast. We hope this serves as a resource for you as you seek, find, and grow in your walk with Jesus. Tune in for sermon audios from our young adult services and other original content. If you already have a home church, we're glad this can be another tool for you. But if not, we hope that you would check us out online at cornerstonelive.net or join us in person. Cornerstone is in Murraysville, PA, and services are Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sundays at 9 and 11 a.m. Our young adult ministry gathers every other Tuesday at 7 p.m. We hope you're equipped for your current and future relationships through this message, Preparing for Marriage. Guys, I'm excited to to be jumping into this with you and and wrapping up this series, Uh, Don't Get It Twisted. And uh, I don't know if you you noticed earlier this week, our graphic designer, Maddie, who uh, also runs our our girls group, she... um, put together a photo that we put up on Instagram, and it was actually, it was a quote uh, from Pastor Chris. And Pastor Chris, our counseling pastor, he and I, we, we had a kind of a bonus conversation that we put on our podcast, and um, it was about how we find freedom from, from sexual sin. And Pastor Chris made this, this comment about how God establishes boundaries on certain things, and the beauty of, of Satan's genius is he gets us to notice and start to even ignore those boundaries just a little bit and can really start to mess with our lives and, and relationships. And that's message. ultimately kind of where this series has been focused and uh, where we've been going is the reality that Satan doesn't have to completely erase the boundary line. He just needs to blur it slightly. He just needs to just subtly bend things just a tad and we can completely find ourselves off course and it just jacks up our understanding of relationships and you know, even early in this series, we talked about dating, and I made this comment about how you cannot be prepared for marriage. You will never be fully equipped, fully prepared for marriage until you're actually in it. And it was a, it was a comment from a guest speaker who was speaking in one of my classes in college, and he made this comment, you will never be ready to be a husband. You will never be ready to be a wife. You will never be ready to be a father. You will never be ready to be a mother. It's just something that the Lord draws you into, and then as he's kind of throwing you into this new way of living, as he shoves you into this covenant, he equips you and he brings people alongside you. So am I kind of doubling back here and and recanting that formal statement, since tonight we're talking about how you prepare for marriage? Well, no, but... What I want us to understand is that there are aspects to marriage that we can process, have a better understanding of, knowing that if that's something the Lord has for you in the future, you will feel more equipped in processing that relationship as you look to move that relationship toward marriage. Okay? So as we talk about this concept, the timing is actually really interesting because coming up um, it'll actually be next uh, Monday. It'll be next Monday, May 29th. It'll be my wife and I's eight wedding anniversary, 13 years uh, together. And in, in comparison, you know, I bumped into Pastor Mark the, uh, at this point. He's our missions and, and outreach pastor. And uh, I, I was able to have a really good conversation with his wife. And I just I walked by him in kind of the break room. And I said, you know, Pastor Mark, your, your wife's pretty cool. And he said, I'll keep her around another 44 years. I was like, wow, 40, 44 years. You know, that's, to try and process that and fully understand that, do I feel fully committed to my wife? Absolutely. But can I fathom what it looks like to be married for 44 years? Absolutely not. 
But I know that the Lord is shaping and working in my wife and I to prepare us for that long journey, to have you know, consistency and endurance in our marriage, to honor the Lord in that. But as you, you look into marriage, there's actually there's one specific phrase that I felt like was always brought up and always jumped up when it comes to talking about marriage and the, and the depth of it, how crucial it is. And it's the concept of being one flesh. And it first pops up in Genesis 2, 24. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And this one passage is referenced several other times. It comes up in Matthew 19 when Jesus is talking about divorce. We might talk about that passage a little bit. Um, but then it's referenced again in Matthew, or, or excuse me, Ephesians 5, verses 28 through 33. I want to look at that together. It says, in the same way... Husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. So he's, Paul is starting to kind of paint this picture of a unified person, a one person. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, and here's that direct quote that Paul's pulling from, Genesis 2, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So this is a very popular phrase when it comes to understanding marriage. And Paul, I like how Paul, like, he digs into this, he kind of gives his personal uh, observation on this. Because remember, in Philippians, Paul talks about this. He says, listen, when it comes to righteousness, I am the, I am the top dog. I am a Pharisee of Pharisees. Uh, born of the tribe of Benjamin, as far as the law, blameless. So he gives his excellent track record within Judaism. And now he's referencing this concept that he would have been trained in, taught in, that he would have memorized by the time he was probably like 11, if not even younger. He would have had this verse memorized. And he says, this mystery is profound. This strange concept of two people becoming one flesh, it is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, we're going to dig into Ephesians 5 a little bit more in the future. But within this concept, again, like I said, it's referenced in Matthew 19 as well as Jesus is talking about divorce, and, and he's talking about uh, the way in which he structured things. But before we read Matthew 19, I want to dig into this phrase, one flesh. Because I've done this before, you know, I'll pull out the, the Greek or the Hebrew and try and figure out, okay, what's the, what's the meaning here? Because maybe in Genesis 2, when it says this one flesh, it, there's, a, there's a deeper spiritual meaning. But it, the Hebrew word for flesh is just bizarre. It literally means flesh physical body. So the two shall become one body, one flesh. All right, you know what, guys? Where's Pastor Trent? You want to come finish this up for me, Pastor Trent? This comes from the woot word. I'm going to, I'm going to, I can't, I can't, blame Kaylee. She puts the slides in, but I don't ask her to proofread for me. I should. I should start. Oh my gosh. My wife has mentioned this before. She's like, get somebody to proofread your PowerPoints. And I don't. Okay. Comes from the root word, 
But that, that Hebrew word basar, I'm going to speed this up so I can get off this slide because it's just going to remain a distraction. But that Hebrew word basar, it comes from a root word <laughs> which actually means messenger or glad tidings. Now, here, here's, this is what's really interesting to me. So this concept of one flesh, it has in its actual etymology, it ties into the concept of marriage being a message of the gospel, a glad tidings of the gospel. So there's this beautiful depth and meaning into this. So even though we can't be fully prepared for marriage, trying to do your part in preparing for marriage comes down to two things. They're, they're simple to, to know at a surface level, but as you really dig into it, they can become extremely complex and very uncomfortable. But it comes down to simply knowing the covenant and knowing yourself. Knowing the covenant and knowing yourself. So I want to talk about this. The word covenant, the word covenant, it vaguely, a covenant is a contract, but with much deeper consequences. With much deeper consequences. Genesis 15, I want to I look at this passage with you guys. And maybe some of you have heard this verse. Maybe you heard it preached, talked through in some regard. But God is dealing with Abram. He hasn't yet changed his name to Abraham. And he's expressing his covenant, this contract he wants to enter into with Abram. And he explains to him the blessing he wants to place upon him. But I want you to, to look at this with me. And we're going to start here in verse 7. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said to him, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. So you have this line of, of sacrifices. So you got half of a, a baby cow. Sorry, I got to say it that way. That's what a heifer is. You got half of a goat, half of a turtle dove, and half of a young pigeon across from this other half. So Abram gets this sacrifice set up. And then verse 11, And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners or journeyers, wanderers in a land that is not theirs. And will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the, in for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Now this is where I really want you guys to pay attention. Verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark... Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Okay, now these things were to represent the presence of God. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Now, this concept of covenant, 
was God making a promise to Abram that he then was agreeing to remain faithful to the Lord. But here's the concept of this, of this sacrifice. When these animals would be cut in half and separated, two people who would make a covenant, they would pass by one another in between the split halves, signifying that if the covenant between the two parties was broken, that they would be split like the severed animals. But what's interesting about this, I need you to pay attention to this, Abram doesn't pass through. So God defines the covenant, and he makes it not necessarily with himself, but he needs to understand, Abram, you can't violate this. And I cannot separate myself, so I need you to bank on the fact that this is going to be true. I am making a covenant that I am carrying the full weight of, and I just need you to remain faithful to me. So you start to get a picture of the weight of covenant. That when we violate covenant, we become cut in two. So now when we look at Genesis 2 in this new light, the concept of husband and wife becoming one flesh, we start to see in process that God is the one who establishes the terms and the parties of the covenant. And this is the part that the world doesn't like. This is the part that we're not that crazy about. Is we have absolutely zero authority to negotiate and try and determine how we feel the covenant should be managed and carried out. But that's basically how not just the secular, the secular world, but also the church is beginning to respond to the covenant of marriage. And we can go ahead and jump to that next slide. Is that we have absolutely no authority. And we do this all the time, right? We try to negotiate with God. And we have these little conversations and ask questions. Well, yeah, but aren't, there's, a, there's a couple of different scenarios in which you know, divorce is okay, in which violating and breaking the covenant is okay. In Matthew 19, this is where Jesus kind of speaks to this, and he, and he kind of changes the tone of the conversation. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he had just talked about the parable of the unforgiving servant, talked about forgiving your brother, how he leaves the 99 for the one. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him, asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. From the beginning of time, God created a covenant that he gets to establish the parameters of. We don't get to rewrite it. If you look at the legal system, if you try to walk in to a courtroom 
and negotiate the, the, the terms of your legal process, you are going to fail miserably. And even if you've studied and trained, there's still no guarantee that you're going to be able to negotiate a contract the way you want it to. And I'm telling you right now, there's no studying, there's no preparation, there's nothing you can do that's ever going to get you to a place where you have authority to negotiate God's terms. You can't change it. And that seems frustrating at the surface, but it's ultimately, it's extremely freeing and extremely beautiful because God says, when you do it my way, it works. It's when you try to mess with the terms that it starts to fall apart. Verse 6. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Don't sever this. It is a covenant. You have been united in this. Verse 7. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to him, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. You tried to change the game, but I never intended this covenant to be violated. Now, guys, before we go, and I want to pause here for a second, because the weight of this is incredibly beautiful. The reason that there is such a strong, that, that, that God holds marriage is such a strong regard. It comes down to a word, at least in English, that we don't talk about all too often. Because when we look at different failures, so to speak, in Scripture, it usually pops up in a few different words. Iniquity, sin, and transgression. Sometimes it's translated transgression, sometimes it's translated trespass, sometimes it's translated uh, rebellion. But the Hebrew word is pesha. And it literally means you violate a commitment and break trust. So you wouldn't say that you have peshed against someone. Okay, so if I had violated Justin's trust, I wouldn't say I peshed against him. I peshed with him. Not because he did something wrong, but I have broken trust with him. The relationship has been severed. It has been broken. kind of the, the concept here, Romans 5.15, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For many died through one man's trespass. The pesha, the violating of trust, the breaking of commitment, the mass rebellion of all humanity. And we play, and, and yes, it is sin, but we actually, we limit the, the ramifications and the ripple effect of Adam and Eve's original sin because we don't process the fact that a commitment between God and his creation had been violated. So why does God hold marriage in such high regard? Because this becomes this little slice of this beautiful reestablished covenant and commitment. And then when you take that and you decide to split it, So God takes that very seriously. And we see that. We, we looked at Ephesians 5. We started to. 
But I want to look at this a little bit more here. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 22, it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should, should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Is the beauty and understanding covenant. And you can actually, when you look at this concept of covenant, there's an entire branch of theology. There are two major views on how you can look at the entirety of Scripture. You can look at the entirety of Scripture through the lens of covenant theology. That the Lord orchestrates the, the entire course of humanity through a series of covenants. Through a series of promises. The other lens is what you call dispensationalism, that you look at Scripture through these chunks of time. And frankly, either view, it doesn't fully encapsulate the, the complexities and, and beauty of Scripture, but the depth of covenant is, is incredibly beautiful. And I want you to think about this for a second. You think about the covenant that God establishes with Abraham, with Abram. and says, listen, I am making, it is not possible for me to violate this covenant. It is against my very nature and against my character. Now, here's what's beautiful. The covenant of Abram, there are elements to that that have not yet been fulfilled. And then in the New Testament, it talks about how we, as non-Jewish people, Gentiles, or if you're Jewish, you're a Messianic Jew, awesome. I would love to talk with you and learn more about that. But we, as non-Jewish people, have been grafted in. We have been basically woven into the root system of that covenant. So simply by that association, by being grafted into that promised people, God cannot violate his covenant to us. And that covenant has expanded into, it has been built up onto, to become the new covenant which includes our redemption in Jesus. This is what's so incredibly beautiful about marriage, what's so incredibly, incredibly beautiful about the concept of covenant, the gospel, and Pastor Trent was, was kind of alluding to this in worship and talking about this as he was leading us, is that it is not possible if we stick with the marriage analogy. It is not possible for God to walk out on you, for God to cheat on you, be unfaithful to you. That is not in his nature it is divinely impossible for him to violate the covenant of redeeming you. Because the concept of covenant is God gives a promise and we respond in worship. So God initiates a covenant relationship with us through the gospel through Jesus' death on the cross. And he says, listen, I will always remain faithful to you. And you have to decide whether or not you're going to be faithful to me. 
And we see through Old, Old Testament again and again, the nation of Israel deciding to be unfaithful and coming back, deciding to be unfaithful and coming back. And God receives his bride again and again and again and again and again. So here's what we do. We negotiate the terms of the covenant. Now let me be clear on this. There is never, there is never a reason in which God is pleased with divorce. There are very limited instances of which he allows it. But he is not pleased by it, ever. Within that concept, here's what we don't like. Yes, God is not pleased with it. He allows divorce when one spouse is unfaithful and unrepentant. But we like to, we like to negotiate the terms. My spouse was unfaithful to me. So God says it's okay, I can get divorced now. Wait a second. Has your spouse repented? Come back to you? You don't get to negotiate the terms. You are called to receive your spouse. So in Matthew 19, when Jesus talks about this, and he says, listen, how I laid this out, it was not this way at the beginning, but you and your hardness of heart, Moses started doing this. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. So if your spouse is unfaithful, unrepentant, he's not pleased with it, but he allows divorce understanding the covenant are you ever going to be fully prepared to, for what that means until you're thrust into it no but to understand the weight of the marriage covenant is going to drastically change how you handle your relationships and I want you to think about this if, if you had the opportunity to train for, for a marathon, let's say. And Caroline, give me, give me a ballpark. What's like a reasonable amount of time going from never running to running a marathon? What's a reasonable amount of time to train for a marathon? Yeah. A week, no. Six months to like healthily train. So if you have no clue what a marathon is, like you have no clue how severe it is, and somebody walks up to you and like, hey, I'm running this marathon next week. You want to join? Like, oh, yeah, sure. I'll totally do that. And then you get to the starting line. You're like, wait, this is 26 miles like that? Like, no, I'm, I'm bailing. Like, yeah, but you paid the $75. I don't care. I'll pay another $75 to not run 26 miles. I'm not built for 26 miles. Not yet. i to work on that. i got to set some, set some goals. If there's any personal trainers that want to work with me, I'm, I'm more than welcome to... I'll, I, you can, I'll be your guinea pig, okay? I'll take your, your, your training services for free. I, I don't have money to pay you. So. But if you don't understand the severity of a marathon and you just sign up for one next weekend, you're not going to survive. And guys, I'm trying to explain to you the severity of covenant. 
the severity of the marriage covenant to say, yes, this is something you need to take seriously and understand what that looks like as you're in a dating relationship. Hopefully you're in that relationship for the purpose of what? Pursuing marriage. But if you know that you're running 26 miles and not one, you're going to train a little differently. You're not necessarily going to know what your time's going to be. You're not going to know if you're going to get a cramp, if you're going to lock up in the middle of the race. You have no idea what it, what's going to come on race day. You don't know. We are never going to know what, is, what marriage is going to be until we're in the thick of it. But to understand the severity of covenant is going to change how you train. It is going to change how you process pursuing that covenant. So knowing the covenant is the first major step. Now, I want to jump back to this concept of one flesh. If the covenant God is establishing is to becoming one flesh, and whether you're single or dating, you don't necessarily have a full understanding of the other person, of your partner yet. So the only other way in which you can prepare for marriage is to have a deeper understanding of yourself. That sounds very like Buddhist. Like, know, know thyself. But guys, there, if you look at 9 out of 10 marriage books you pull off the shelf, you got 12 questions to ask before you marry by Clayton King, uh, forward by Greg, Craig Rochelle. It's, it's, it's not bad. Um, saving your marriage before it starts. This is a really popular one. And preparing for marriage God's way uh, are all really good. And a lot of the concepts in this book you can process and walk through as a single person because they fall into this category of the majority of them, the majority of these questions and concepts, they fall into this category of understanding the weight of the marriage covenant, but then also understanding how you're wired. So like just a little excerpt from this book, Preparing for Marriage God's Way. It says, knowing yourself and your partner in a deep and accurate way is important to the success of your relationship. Understanding yourself in an intimate and personal way is an essential requirement for developing and maintaining deep unity in your marriage relationship. So this is stuff you can start to work on now. You start to ask yourself some of these questions. How do I express love? That's another really popular resource, the, the five love languages. How do I give and receive love? And the five main love languages that are, that are talked about in that book are gifts, but it's more so giving gifts. My wife jokes about how her love language is receiving gifts. She's like, I'm fantastic at receiving gifts. And I love her to death. Um, and it's one of the things I love about her is how terrible she is at giving gifts. Like, we were... So I invited my wife to, to my senior prom. And then we had, like, three months of that, like, no, we're not a couple. We were a couple. Like, we were dating. But we were doing that, like, no, it's not official. So uh, two weeks after I invited to my senior prom, and we were definitely dating. We were a thing. She gets me a gift for graduation. And you would think, like, hey, the person you're flirting with and basically dating, you're spending all your time with, is going to get you, like, something, like, cute or intimate. And my beautiful wife, uh, unofficial girlfriend at the time, got me just this hideous wide neck tie. Like, she, like, 
Like, okay, I thought we were dating. Like, I didn't think you were like some estranged aunt that was just going to mail me like a graduation gift. And then my first, first Father's Day, and my wife will admit this, it was the middle of the night, it was like 2 a.m., she had just fed Elliot, and she realized she hadn't got me a Father's Day gift. She got me one of those breakfast sandwich makers. Anybody have one of those? Anybody have one of those breakfast sandwich makers? Good, because they're terrible. Okay. It doesn't toast the bread. It doesn't cook the meat. It, if you want an undercooked egg and melted cheese, that's what it's... Like, you can't even assemble the... Like, it, honestly, it's just another dirty dish. So she was, like, all excited about this. Like, you're going to love this. And then she didn't even know what it did. And oh, I, love, I love her to death, but she does not know how to give gifts to, to save her life. She did pretty good. She did pretty good this, this year for my birthday. My birthday was, was uh, this past Friday. She did pretty good for my birthday this year. Uh, and she, she continues to work on it. But there are gifts, acts of service, quality time, physical touch. Every guy's love language is physical touch. <laughs> um, some guys genuinely aren't. I really thought that joke was going to land better. Thanks, guys. I appreciate that. <laughs> appreciate that. And then words of encouragement. But here's, so I want to give you guys an example. I had no clue how I gave love until I was married. And I realized the way in which I gave love the most efficiently and effectively was through acts of service. I had no clue until we were probably about a month away from our wedding that my wife's way of receiving love the most effectively is words of encouragement. Am I fully going to understand the ramifications of that until we're in our marriage? No, but now that we are, it's something I have to be intentional at working on. And you might give and receive love the same way, but you think about some of the tension that can create if you give and receive love different than how your partner gives love or receives love. So understanding what is my love language, understanding what is my personality. I am an outgoing extrovert. There's a difference between being extroverted and introverted, being shy and outgoing. Shy and outgoing, that's just your demeanor around people. Extrovert, introvert is where you receive life and energy. Are you more energized around people or are you more energized by being alone? You can be an outgoing introvert. You love, you're like very bubbly. Hey, how you doing? Good to see you. But then you get to an end of a, a, a gathering of people and you're just drained. It just sucks the life out of you. And you're like, oh, I can't wait to be alone under my weighted blanket. Or you could leave a party all hyped, but you were like in the back of the room not talking to anybody. <laughs> so you're extroverted, you get life from people, but you're really shy. And my wife, she jokes about this because she is a shy introvert and I am an outgoing extrovert. So we just have the amount of conversations where we're going to a church function and she just kind of looks at me for a second and she's like, can you do me a favor and not abandon me this time around? Like, can you actually stay with me? And we get in and I'll, I'll make it like five minutes before I'm like, oh, hey, what's up? And my wife's just standing over there with the kids. I feel terrible. I have to work at that. I have to work at that. But to understand your personality, this one's, this one's tricky. How do, you, how do I function in unhealth? When I am not in a good way, Do I seclude myself and get quiet? And how's that going to work when my wife needs words of encouragement? And I'm having a bad week. 
So I shut up for a whole week and I don't tell her I love her. I don't tell her I appreciate her. Hey, when you're in an unhealthy spot, do you need people around you to encourage you? But your spouse is not comfortable with inviting people outside of your marriage into your problems. To know these things about yourself. So as you're building a relationship with someone working towards marriage, you're able to start to notice some of these little details and how you function. Just knowing these things about yourself now is going to change how you process your friendships. But also, where am I at in my walk with Jesus? I've been blessed with the opportunity to perform weddings for a couple of people and Kind of a, a requirement for me personally is I will not marry somebody unless they go through premarital counseling. And I haven't done that very often because, frankly, being married eight years, I don't feel qualified to do so most of the time. I feel like marriage counseling should be reserved for people who have been married for 44 years. But whenever I take somebody through premarital counseling, I need them to understand something. Premarital counseling is not going to resolve all of their marriage issues and marriage problems. It's not going to teach them necessarily have a great marriage. But it's to help two individuals understand where they're at and the fact that God is calling calling them into a covenant where he is supposed to make her look more like Jesus and she is supposed to make him look more like Jesus. So if you can... If you have self-awareness of saying, hey, these are my faults and failures and shortcomings... So like one of, the, one of the steps and one of the things I do with a couple as they're going through premarital counseling is they need to, if they have not already, they need to sit down and they need to hash out their entire past with the other person. And it is com- uncomfortable and, and frustrating and it can be painful and difficult. But to understand, hey, this is where I'm at. If we're going to run this marathon together, I need you to know that I've never even put on a pair of running shoes. Or I need you to know if I've run three of these before and my times were pretty good. And to understand who it is you're going to be running this race with. But if you don't have good self-awareness, you are setting your, your future spouse, you're setting yourself up for a failure within this relationship. Maybe not a failure, but some severe hurdles. So are we ever going to be able to fully process the depth and the beauty of what marriage is and can be until the Lord decides to thrust us into that, that's a tricky thing to process. But if we can have a sense of reverence, reverence for covenant, the marriage covenant, to understand, hey, this thing I'm, I'm, I'm running toward, this thing I'm preparing for, that, it is severe, it is serious, and I need to be taking this seriously. I'm not saying you go into dating relationships and you sit down with a suit on and be like, all right, what are your three worst traits? Do you think you're a shy extrovert and out? No, I'm not saying you interview your your marital candidates. But I'm saying to understand that you're not going to take this lightly. And as you wait for that, as you wait to see if the Lord has that for you, you start to process some of these things. Hey, how do I give love and how do I receive love from people? When I've had a terrible week, am I snapping at my parents? Am I snapping at my siblings and my coworkers? 
And how am I going to start to work on that now so I'm not snapping on my spouse, that I'm not reacting aggressively to my kids? If I know that I crave being around people and I see early on in a relationship that the person I'm with the life is just drained right out of them when they're around people. Are we going to be able to balance that in our marriage? Or is one of us constantly going to be in a place of feeling drained because either we're going to hang out with people all the time or we're going to stay at home and one of us is always going to be unsatisfied? So to know where you're at, to know yourself, to know the covenant is drastically going to change how you approach marriage, how you prepare for it. But along the way, the only thing we can do is beg God that he gives us the endurance to run that race to completion. Because oh, obviously I can't speak to the female side of things, but fellas, I can tell you what. I have experienced no greater joy in my life than the moments when I've been able to stand on the sidelines and see my wife functioning out of beauty and splendor where it says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Sanctify her with the washing of the word that you might present her before the Lord without spot or wrinkle. And those moments where the Lord has graced me with the ability to love her the way I need to, and then I see her interacting with people. I, I get to watch her from afar interacting with, the, with our kids. And I see these moments of, that's a spotless moment right there. That's a moment of beauty and splendor. And I praise God and I thank God that he's given me the ability to, to, to build her into that moment. And I praise God and I thank God for moments where she has built me up and encouraged me in such a way that I was able to act and, and function out of my calling and gifting. And she has supported me in incredible ways. And I see these beautiful moments where she's making me more, more like Jesus and I'm making her more like Jesus but I can tell you this, we are making it the heck up as we go. I don't know what it's like to be married for eight years. I haven't been married for eight years yet. And I'm sure year eight is going to look really stinking confusing. And every year after that is going to look really stinking confusing. But I know as I continue to learn who I am, I continue to learn who she is, and we both have a reverence for the covenant of marriage that God has drawn us into, it's going to give us endurance through those years. So let's pray together. Father, I praise you. I thank you so much for the fact that you have wired us, created us for relationship. And we don't know. We don't know the plans that you have for us. We know that the plans that you do have for us are for your honor and glory. We know that they're for our good, for our holiness. But God, whether you have marriage in our future or not, would you just instill in us a, a healthy fear of covenant, understanding that we have zero authority to negotiate with you, to try and change the terms of things you have established. From the foundation of the world, you established the terms of these types of covenants, and we have zero authority to try and change them. 
even though sometimes those terms make us uncomfortable and they're, and they're difficult, and, but they're ultimately they're for our good. They're for your glory. And Father, would you show us, reveal to us the inner workings of who we are. You've designed us with beauty and grace and specific things in mind, but we need to start learning how it is we function. Where do we find life and joy? How do we give and receive love? How do we process love from you and from the people around us? God, when we're in those difficult seasons, how are we responding to those moments and how is that potentially hurting the people around us? And as we understand where we're at in our walk with you, that you would give us the the wisdom not to place ourselves in positions where we're unequally yoked with another person, as it says in 2 Corinthians 6. But God, we thank you for the blessing of marriage. Help us to respect it and to honor you with it, if that's what you'd have for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you enjoyed this message. For more information on the Young Adult Ministry, follow us on Instagram, or you can email youngadults at cornerstonelive.net.